The number one thing that I would say is when you make the jump from operative to entrepreneur, you have to understand that your objectives are aligned with your clients, but they are not identical. Your client's objective is to end up with $0 in the bank on election day and to win their election. If you end up with $0 in the bank on election day, you have done something horribly, horribly wrong. I'm Eric Wilson, Managing Partner of Startup Caucus, an investment fund and incubator for Republican campaign technology. Welcome to the Business of Politics podcast. On this show, we bring you into conversation with the entrepreneurs who build best-in-class political businesses, the funders who provide the capital, and the operatives who put it all together to win campaigns. On this episode, we're speaking with Nicole Schlinger, president and founder of Campaign Headquarters, which is a call center for Republican campaigns and conservative organizations. More than anyone I know in politics, Nicole believes in building a scalable business, and she's an avid reader about business, leadership, and management. I'm really excited to have her on the show today. Nicole, a lot of our listeners might be thinking to themselves, a call center. But as you and I both know, phones are still the lifeblood of voter contact on campaigns. Walk our listeners through how Campaign HQ fits into a candidate strategy. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on, Eric. Really glad to be able to be here with you today. To answer your question, phones are one of the few media where the voter gets to have a two-way conversation with the candidate or the organization. That means when a campaign may post on Facebook, people certainly can post their snarky replies to their heart's content, but that's not the same as being able to have a back-and-forth conversation. Last year during the pandemic, that played a huge role. Phones were one of the only opportunities that were still left and still open to voters to be heard by their elected officials and for elected officials and campaigns and candidates to be able to have that two-way conversation. People, regardless of technology, still have a basic human desire to be heard. No matter what changes and so much has changed, campaigns still need to have conversations with voters. They need to identify, they need to persuade, they need to turn out. We've been doing this since Abe Lincoln said, make a perfect list of the voters and ascertain where each man stands. And and we're going to keep on doing that. So phones have an important and vital role in campaigns even if that sometimes isn't the flashiest and doesn't make the national news. But it's a role that we've proven can be a vital difference maker in in moving the needle on a race. Right. I think people really just are so disconnected from where the average voters in terms of still having landlines and getting contacted that way that it's not just all apps and email. So it really is a foundational campaign tactic still. Going back to 1968, right? With the Robert Kennedy campaign, really were the first to systematize phone banking. So it, it has had staying power and continues to do so. And, and especially as right, the, the phone becomes more than just a, a communications device, but it's a, it's a platform. And we'll talk a little bit about how your business has navigated that over the years. But with that context of why a call center, let's talk through your business by the numbers and talk to me about how many employees do you typically have with a call center? It varies greatly. So we have to scale up and down based on the need on any given day. So we have our core client success team and our data team and some administrative support. As an example on, you know, ranges from a couple hundred hours of calling a day right now to, you know, we've had up to 15,000 hours of calling in a day. Wow. Um, we've had 
Yeah, we've had times when a client needed 10,000 patch throughs to a bunch of senators in one day. And this week I, I talked to someone explain, about- Explain to yeah. our audience what a patch through is. You bet. A patch through call is where we call constituents in a given district, state, Senate, congressional, U.S. Senate in a state. We call them and tell them about an important issue, likely one that's going to be voted on in the very near future. And we say, do you agree with us on this issue? As an example, do you agree that amnesty should not be included? in the next budget reconciliation bill. When they agree with us, we explain the best way you can have an impact on this is to talk to your U.S. Senator's office right now. We can transfer you at no cost and you can make your voice heard. And then we transfer that person to the office. So instead of an issue organization sending their representatives to a U.S. Senator's office, we send 2,000 voters to that U.S. Senator's office to make their voices heard. Um, and the voice of the people that elected you is just a lot more powerful than, than the voice that any one insider might have. So 15,000 hours of calls a day seems like a lot, but help folks understand just how big Campaign HQ is and how many campaigns or organizations you're working with on a typical two or four year election cycle. We do a lot of work with conservative issue organizations, which means they might be involved in independent expenditures in anywhere from 40 to 50 races. So if you count all of the independent expenditure groups uh, that, that we're looking to impact races, the consultants we worked with, the campaigns we worked with directly, we're working with upwards of 200 to 300 in, in a two-year election cycle. That being said, I talked to someone this week who has a county sheriff's race in Utah. Our our minimum order is $250. So uh, we can make an impact for just about any campaign of any size. Got it. And that goes to something you know I mentioned earlier, but, but it is a scalable business up and down the ballot, which I think is the hallmark of a really successful political business, that it's a repeatable, scalable process, whether you're running for county sheriff or president of the United States. Exactly. One of the things that's challenging about political businesses is people perceive them to be very cyclical, which means it could be hard to get funding. It could be hard to get loans. It could be hard to get credit. We work very hard to have a constant stream of revenue and a constant stream of opportunities. The way we do that is we are a mission-driven organization with a very specific point of view. And we work not only to elect people we believe in to office, we also work to hold elected officials accountable. And that means after the election is over, then the lawmaking begins. And we have a role in both sides of that coin. And that makes for a stable business that can be scalable and repeatable. Right. And I think it's a really important point because like that seasonality, it scares a lot of people away from the political business. But what are your strategies for managing the ebb and flow of a political business? Absolutely. The number one thing that we do is we have a very focused core offering. We communicate by phone and by text. And we help conservative candidates, consultants, and issue organizations win elections and public policy battles. So we focus on a very specific constituency and a very specific marketplace. That being said, there are elections almost every week of the year in the United States. And if you work both on elections and on policy, you don't necessarily want to even things out. What you want to do is you want to make the highs even higher, <laughs> but you want to make the lows not as low. Right. Um, so there's going to be some spikes. I For folks who are outside the world of campaigns, I, I liken it to an accountant's office. Um, an accountant has a very 
regular seasonal spike in business. Mm -hmm. And yet no one thinks that that's not a realistic, uh, attainable, scalable business. People think accountants are very respectable, legitimate businesses. So uh, when you compare it to something like that, so many businesses have seasonality. It's a matter of having a strategy for it. And knowing that, that means during those spikes, you have to budget and understand how much money do you need to put away so that you can fund your payroll, you can fund your growth, your marketing. You need to be investing in those things when that cash flow is coming in. And some of that means putting that money away for when you need it. Speaking of marketing, I am the beneficiary of your gifts from time to time. You're a big believer in that. Talk to me about you know how that came to be and how you use that as a marketing and sales strategy. Absolutely. Uh, I, I'm looking at some campaign HQ gear here on my desk right now. Oh, that's fantastic. I'll have to get you some more of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there is a there is a method behind the madness on the gifts. Uh, what we find is that from the time we speak with someone and have a great conversation about how we might be able to impact their race until the time they're actually ready to begin a project could be months. And we want to have a way to keep in touch with them and to keep Campaign HQ, what we can do for them at the top of mind. And what I don't want to do is I don't want to call them every two weeks and say, got any business for me? <laughs> because that's that's boring and it's annoying. And so what we seek to do with those gifts is we seek to keep ourselves top of mind in a way that's fun and a way that's relevant. So if you're on our gift list, we're going to send you things that you can put in your travel bag so you can use them at times. Political consultants, campaigns, candidates, they travel a lot. If we can get in your travel bag, we can keep ourselves top of mind in a way that's actually useful and helpful to you. If we can get something that's useful on your desk. During the pandemic, we sent out over 500 wireless chargers for cell phones. People were trapped at home in their basements, working from home at their desks, and they had our wireless charger right in front of them all day long. I don't think it gets any better than that in terms of something that's wonderful for the recipient, but important for us as well. That's really important. Not only is the the business have seasonal spikes, but the sales cycle is different for everyone. So, you, you know, staying top of mind is, I think, one of the biggest challenges for sales in political businesses. So Campaign HQ is over 20 years old, which means that you've had to adapt to several technological transformations during that time period. What do you look for in deciding whether something is a fad that's going to go away or a trend that's here to stay? Good question. So uh, as you said, we've been around since 1999. We started out doing major donor fundraising, scheduling meetings, events for local candidates. I couldn't find anyone to make my phone calls the way I wanted them done. So I started my own call center. That's that's how we got to this point where we are today. And we transitioned in 2007 to doing that nationwide. I tell folks who come to us that we're not necessarily in the business of making phone calls. We're in the business of communicating your message to the people who need to hear it. And so we can't know with certainty what is a trend and what is a fad, but we're going to try a lot of things and see what works. That's for sure. The first pivot was we went from using Excel printouts to using a dialer. We were very early to adapt to cell phones. There was a ruling, I think it might have been way back in... 2011, 2012, don't quote me on that, um, that you had to separate landlines and cell phones and you could not use a predictive dialer to dial cell phones. Mm -hmm. Well, at the time that this happened, Eric, cell phones were a small portion of people's overall dialing list, whether it was voter contact or whether it was fundraising or anything in between. So we saw a lot of people who would separate the landlines and the cell phones and they would throw away the cell phones. 
Oh, no. Uh, they just wouldn't dial them. You know, if it was only 5% of your list, what's the drawback? We were very early to TCPA compliant manual dialing because we saw that people dropping their landlines and having their cell phone as their primary mode of communication was going to be the way of the future. And it absolutely was. For the same reason, we were very early to peer-to-peer texting. I just signed up for AAPC's advisory board on this today as, as changes come down from carriers and it gets harder to deliver your message. But the notion that people consider their cell phone their primary communications device, a lot of the folks who were very focused on landlines exclusively were not as successful. Now we find it the other way around that people tend to discard their landlines. And once again, I think they're making a huge mistake. The AARP did a study on uh, the percentage of voters over the age of 65 who have landlines and the percentage of those voters who actually vote. And uh, folks are making a big mistake if they discard those landlines. Right. And just to share with folks listening right now that traditional business like, oh, 5%, not the end of the world. But we're talking about campaigns and elections that are won with thousands of votes, hundreds of votes, and getting closer all the time. So 5% is the difference between winning and losing, right? And so that's just not an acceptable waste for folks to have. And so once you've made this decision that we're going to go in this direction, we're, we're going to keep dialing cell phones manually in a compliant way, we're going to do peer-to-peer texting, talk a little bit about how you operationalize that into your business. Ultimately, what we're looking to do is we're looking to make every service we provide, both personalized and yet also a scalable, repeatable process. And that starts similarly to the way that it might start in in a tech company, which is it starts with testing. So we're going to, uh, you know, we're going to try some things. The first few peer-to-peer texting campaigns we did for clients, we did for free. We offered it to them because we wanted to see we just needed to know what would happen if we did it. Would the messages get delivered? Would people respond to them? How would they respond to them? And so in the early phases of testing, there's not a lot of scalability there because the main purpose is learning. Once you've determined that you've got at the very least a minimum viable product, it has to be trainable so that the folks who are on the front lines with our clients, working with them, developing their voter contact programs, have something that's understandable both for them and for the campaigns that are seeking to use it. How does it fit into their voter contact program. We need to know what our margins are. We have to have consistent pricing. And then we have to have a support team that can execute on that. We are really big here at Campaign HQ on manuals. And over the years, that's evolved from printing out binders and binders full of paper to having that as an online system that's accessible, that is instantly simultaneously updated so no one's ever using something that's out of date. It's a combination of text and images and videos to make sure that everyone is trained consistently. So whether I'm the one that is working with you on something that's a a brand new test project or you're working with someone else in our operation, you are consistently getting the same best practice top to bottom. That takes a lot of work, right? Um, to be able to create all of that stuff. And and so I think it's one of those things, right, that takes a lot of money on the front end, but it pays dividends as you grow and get bigger and, and you're just able to scale. Another side of this is of sort of knowing when to step back from something. And so you recently this year sold part of your business that related to fundraising so that you could focus more on voter contact. Can you just walk our listeners through you know, how you came to that decision of saying, hey, this is a business line that we need to step away from? And then you know, just talk about what's unique about that kind of transaction in the political space. 
Absolutely. So first, let me say telephone fundraising is an amazing service. Too few candidates take advantage of the opportunity of what they can accomplish with it. But for quite a few years, we had essentially been running two separate businesses under one roof. The needs and goals of telephone fundraising are very different from voter and constituent engagement. And so the progression was a very natural one for us. So earlier this year, Direct Response Group acquired the telephone fundraising division of our business. I could not be more pleased with how smoothly this went. And I'll tell you, Eric, this is really a testament to having a scalable business because when that transition was made, We had repeatable practices that we could transition and share with the team at Direct Response Group. We chose to work with an organization that had deep experience in telephone fundraising. So frankly, I'm not sure that an organization that didn't already have that level of experience with telephone fundraising might be able to step in and do that. That being said, we had developed some very unique practices that were able to greatly expand the ROI for the telephone fundraising clients that we had. Every client that transitioned transition had a very detailed two-year plan for exactly what would happen in every month of the campaign. They had years of reportable, repeatable statistics. We focused very heavily on creating monthly donor programs that, that dramatically increased the ROI. And we developed a really unique offering with fundraising telephone town halls that was not being done with any other telephone fundraising vendor in the business. So we shared some really unique things and we were able to share those because, frankly, they were just so well documented and to the best of my knowledge something like that has not been done before well yeah i mean you're you're selling you're selling a business not just a client roster right i mean like that's that's i think what's what's unique there Exactly. Exactly. We were able to transition these clients to getting exactly what they expected this election cycle. And that to me was the most important thing. Well, that's really exciting. Congratulations again on that. And I think it's fair to say that you didn't really start out on the typical trajectory of an entrepreneur. You know, you came up in campaigns and fundraising. So for our our listeners who are maybe just starting that journey or, or thinking about making the leap from operative to entrepreneur, What advice would you give them? The number one thing that I would say is when you make the jump from operative to entrepreneur, you have to understand that your objectives are aligned with your clients, but they are not identical. Your client's objective is to end up with $0 in the bank on election day and to win their election. If you end up with $0 in the bank on election day, you have done something horribly, horribly wrong. What I've found over the years in talking to folks and my own experience and the many mistakes I've made along the way is go out and get an understanding of business fundamentals. And that is completely different knowledge set and skill set than being a good political operative. First and foremost, you have to have a great offering. You have to offer something that is of value. So make sure that you offer great product and a great service. But if I had to give one piece of advice to someone starting today, it would be make sure you understand those business fundamentals before you get in. Understand what it costs you to provide the service, what you need your margin to be, and what you need your net to be. How much is everything going to cost? What kind of business structure you're going to have? What's your end goal? How do you eventually make this scalable? Well, yeah. And and I know you're an avid reader. You've probably got some books to share with them as well. Oh, 
I have a lot of books to share. Uh, if I had to give someone, the first book I would suggest someone read uh, on their first day in business is The Dip by Seth Godin. It is, tells you about when to quit and when to stick. And that has been such a transformational book to me. There are all of these sayings that winners never quit and quitters never win. And if you look at the history of the most successful people in business and politics, they quit things and they quit them frequently. It's a matter of quitting the right things at the right time so that you can focus on the places where you can get through that dip and win. That there's a reason uh, there's a reason that it's hard to succeed and that there, there's a the dip is meant to keep other people out. So that's the first thing I would read because it's inspirational and foundational and sets your mindset for what's to come. The next thing I would suggest people read is The Ultimate Sales Machine by Chet Holmes. It is a start to finish guide on how to build a scalable business. The first time I read it, so much of it I felt did not apply to me was beyond where I was in business at that point in time. But every time I come back to it, it becomes more and more relevant. And I wouldn't shy away from reading something, even if you are a team of just you. Um, on the first day in business, everyone is a team of just you. Everyone wakes up that first morning, they have zero dollars in the bank, they have zero clients, and it's just you and a blank screen and you've got to make it happen. But it's never too early to start thinking about the culture and values that you intend to build because you're not going to do this all by yourself if you're going to get very far. And so the next thing I would suggest is a book about teamwork. And that could be uh, that could be one of the great books by Jim Collins, or it could be something uh, there's a lot of great books, uh, business books that are related to sports. One of them I really love is the one that's uh, by the late Bill Walsh, which is uh, The Score Takes Care of Itself. How he took the San Francisco 49ers from being one of the worst teams in the NFL to one of the enduring best teams in the NFL, and how all of Bill Walsh's assistant coaches went on to be successful in other places because of what they learned from him. And it's, it's just all about business fundamentals. Well, a, a great reading list for sure there. I want to thank Nicole for joining us today. There's a link to the Campaign HQ website in the show notes. If you found value from listening to this episode, subscribe to the Business of Politics podcast wherever you listen and share it with your friends and colleagues. 